Jared in a move that has surprised no one. Football is back against all odds. It's here. I don't even know what to do, man. Did you miss it, Bobby? Did you find yourself like turning on the TV yesterday at one o'clock and just like being like, wow, I miss this so much. I had on Red Zone and first of all, amazing just to have Red Zone back. But they have the countdown right before the one o'clock games. And Margo, my wife, was sitting next to me. I was like, are right, you ready to count down? And she's like, okay. And we counted down from 10. It was, it was so, I was so hyped, man. I, I am so hyped. It's just like, it's so great to have it back. It is great to have it back. Not only because we get to watch it every Sunday and Monday and Thursday, but because we get to talk about it on Chatter Up. So let's do it. Bobby, week one of the 2021. 2022 NFL seasons in the books. Pretty crazy. We actually had appearances by all five first round rookie quarterbacks. Three started Trevor Lawrence, the number one overall pick, Zach Wilson, number two, Mac Jones, who was like 15 or something like that. And we had Justin Fields and Trey Lance both get into their games and score touchdowns. So, which rookie QB impressed you the most yesterday, Bobby? None of them did like unbelievably stellar jobs that I think there's a clear cut favorite to me personally. I, I, I was actually really impressed with Trevor Lawrence. Really? I was, he made some mistakes. He definitely made some mistakes, but I think the good that he did was better than everyone else's good. Like he threw some dimes and there was one that was like a bomb. It must've been a 40 yard touchdown to was it shark maybe down the sideline. That was just, I mean, it was, it was beautiful. It was Patrick Mahomes-esque. It was exactly what you want to see. There's a ton of room to grow there. I was really impressed by a lot of them. Obviously, some of them played more than others, and so much as, you know, Trey Lance and Justin Fields didn't really play that much. But I was really impressed by Trevor Lawrence, and I think for a, for a first game, I think it was a pretty solid debut. It's pretty interesting because I think he kind of, if you look at the stats, he probably had the worst debut. Yep. Yep. of the three guys because like yes he threw for three touchdowns but he had three picks he wasn't particularly efficient he was like 28 for 50 or something like that I mean I echo your sentiment that nobody really jumped off the page right if you look at the numbers I think he, Mac Jones is probably the best one like 29 mm-hmm. of 39 mm-hmm. that's pretty efficient he almost threw for 300 yards only one touchdown though no picks but at the end of the day his team lost and they scored 16 points so it's not like he played that well and the same with Zach Wilson like the Jets were in the game until the end, and he was much better in the second half than the first, but still, they scored 14 points. So it's not like he went out there. It, it kind of all these guys kind of had like flashes or moments. Nobody had like real sustained success. Yep. But I think if you're just going on the numbers, you'd have to go with the guy who was drafted the lowest out of actually all five of these guys, Mac Jones. I think, sure, yes, statistically, that's probably the right answer. I'll say that, like, what I saw, which was minimal, but what I saw from Justin Fields was real exciting. Like, that RPO yeah. he ran to run it into the end zone was just... I don't know how you stop that. Not only how do you stop it, but also, like, how much longer before Matt Nagy's just like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, this ain't... They got blown out. They got blown out, and it wasn't close. Yeah. I mean, the, the Rams are much better than them, though. Like, I, I don't I don't think like they would have I don't think it would have necessarily been a closer game, even if Justin Fields plays. It's just one of those things where it's like, why are we wasting our time with Andy Dalton? It doesn't make any sense to me. And the thing is, like next week they play Cincinnati. And so they are the better team. 
they should come out of that with a victory. Now, granted, Cincinnati looked real good against Minnesota, or at least, you know, they, they won the game. Like, that's all that really matters. Yeah. And so if, if Chicago does not win at home against Cincinnati, that has to be it, right? Like, because then you're 0-2, you're starting to hit the panic button. Fans are freaking out. They're calling for your head. You got to switch him, right? I would think so, because it's not like he's done anything for them or that they owe him anything. Like, at least with the Niners and Garoppolo, sure, they traded up and drafted a quarterback, so you know they're going to make the switch at some point, but Garoppolo got him to the Super Bowl two years ago. Like, there's, he has some equity there in the way that Andy Dalton does not in Chicago. He's not, he has not done anything for them. I mean, he's, he's mm-hmm. ne- he hasn't been there before. He's been there for now one game. So I would think, I would think you're right. If they don't win next week, or at least if, you know, look, if they, if they score a bunch of points and they lose the game, obviously they'll probably still stick with Dalton, but if they don't play significantly better on offense, yeah, we're probably talking about fields in week three. Who do they play week three of their schedule there? I do. They play the lions, which would yeah. be a great game for fields to come in on. Yeah, that's a good, that's a nice soft landing spot. Jared, we were surprised and somewhat not surprised by the quarterbacks, but there was a lot to be surprised about this week. You know, on the lesser of a lot of things, Ryan Fitzpatrick goes down in the first quarter, is now out for six to eight weeks, which is like the lowest story on this totem pole. I'm just, I'm just going <laughs> to read you a couple. We have Green Bay getting blown out by a Jameis Winston-led Saints team and Aaron Rodgers throwing for two picks and 200 yards. The Bills lost at home to Pittsburgh. Kansas City comes back from being 22 to 10 down at halftime. Arizona shreds the Titans and Kyler Murray looks like an MVP. And Philadelphia, granted, albeit against the Falcons, but blow out Atlanta. Any of those stories to you stick out as the most surprising, or is there another one that you think tops all of those? Most surprising, I think, has to be Green Bay, getting absolutely destroyed by the Saints. I mean, we talked all preseason how we were like, oh, we don't really know what the Saints are. I'm not sure what Jameis is, Taysom Hill, whatever. They're coming. No more Drew Brees. They were playing in Jacksonville as a home game for the Saints because of the hurricane. So to see the reigning MVP who threw five interceptions all of last season through two in week one and just get absolutely pasted. Like it'd be one thing I would have been surprised just for the saints to win this game. Honestly, like if you told me the saints won this game 28 to 21, I would have been like, wow, that is surprising because I just don't know what they are. And green Bay is whatever you think of them, whether you think they're actual super bowl contenders or not, they're still one of the best teams in the NFC. But to lose 38 to three. And by the way, for Jameis to throw five touchdowns yeah. and like 150 yards, such a strange stat line. So that to me has to, in my mind, was the most surprising. Do you disagree, Bobby? So, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer your question in a second, but I, I want to I stay here in Green Bay for just a second. I don't know which one of these is, is, is more legitimate that like the saints are actually really good with Jameis at quarterback or green Bay is in full on panic mode. It's week one. So I don't think it's fair to say either of those things. Yeah. But like this game is going to be looked back on this season. It's, it's literally going to be unbelievable, right? Like either green Bay is going to come back and be contenders. Like we think they will. And we're going to look back on this and like, what, what happened? 
or they're not. And we're going to be like, how did this happen with an Aaron Rodgers led previously coming off an NFC championship game at home? It's just, it, it doesn't make sense to me for, for me. I'm going to say both of them wind up coming out as contenders. I am more buying into the Saints' success than I am Green Bay's failure. But it's it's just, it's absolutely wild. And, and in terms of like things that I found most surprising, it's a tie between Arizona destroying Tennessee and also Buffalo losing at home. Outside of Kansas City, we'll start with Buffalo. Buffalo's the team that everybody is picking. You know, they're the trendy pick challenge Kansas City. And, and really maybe even go and win the Super Bowl. And they came out at home against a Ben Roethlisberger-led Steelers team, which a lot of people are not giving enough credit to. And they lost. And it yeah. wasn't like, like they were down 10 with two minutes to go. Like that defense looked great. And so seeing Josh Allen throw for under 300 yards, one touchdown looked relatively ineffective. It was just shocking to see considering where they were beforehand as for Arizona what is this like I, okay sure maybe Arizona's great because they have Kyler Murray and and maybe mm-hmm. he's taking the next step forward maybe what is this defense a defense that holds Ryan Tannehill AJ Brown Derrick Henry and Julio Jones to virtually nothing Derrick Henry in the first half had almost nine attempts for eight yards I just, I, I literally can't comprehend that. I, I, so fine. Yeah. That, that, that's my pick. That's the more like surprising thing to me. I think Buffalo is impactful, but the fact that Arizona's defense held Tennessee's offense, I, I just, I cannot understand how that happened. So we've talked about surprising, but I want to hear from you, which of these storylines that we've talked about, do you think is actually the most impactful or, or sustainful do you know what i mean because yeah obviously yep. it's very small sample size but so we can't really say you can't extrapolate too much from it but for example the green bay and the new orleans game there's a good chance that we just write it off at the end of the year kind of like when when new orleans just destroyed the bucks last year and we're like holy crap like what the hell happened and at the end of the day, like, it didn't matter, right? The Bucks, like, whatever, end up winning the Super Bowl. So is there, are there any one of these that particularly stick out to you as, like, this might be a season-long thing? I think of the ones we mentioned, I think it has to be Kansas City, right? Like, Kansas City down 22 to 10 at halftime. They're the real deal. You know what I mean? Like, they're the real deal. Also in that game, Cleveland. Cleveland's the real deal. If you take that one out of it, which of the other ones we just spoke about is, is, is sustainable? I'm going to take the Saints. I think the Saints' success is sustainable down the road. If Jameis wins now, he's not going to throw five touchdowns and go turnover list in every game. That's not going to happen. But if somehow Sean Payton has gotten him to buy into the system and just fixed this incredible turnover problem that he had, you're looking at a top 15 quarterback in the league. And if that's the case, the Saints are real good and a defense anchored by Cam Jordan I think that's the most sustainable. You agree? So I would actually go back to what you said with Kansas City and Cleveland, but focus on Cleveland because, yes, they lost the game. and That stinks. But we talked about it last week where we were like, okay, it's a rematch of the playoff game, and the Browns kept it close in that playoff game, had a chance to win in the fourth quarter, but there was the caveat of, well, Mahomes got hurt early in the second half. They played most of the second half with Chad Henney as quarterback, so how legitimate is it? We didn't know. Well, 
Granted, this is week one, so you can't take that much away from it, but it was a full game of Mahomes and the Browns, not for a bad special teams play, very well could have and maybe should have won that game. And if nothing else, it tells you the Browns, if you didn't already know it, the Browns are really legit. And by the way, playing without Odell Beckham Jr. yesterday, we don't know exactly what Odell Beckham Jr. is anymore, but there's a chance he's still really good, if not you know, what he was a few years ago. And you add that piece to an offense that already has, I mean, maybe two of the best. Chubb is without question one of the five, maybe one of the three best running backs in the league. Kareem Hunt, honestly, might be like one of the top ten, and he's a backup. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got Baker looking a lot better. You've got Jarvis Landry, who we know what Jarvis Landry is, like just a consummate number two, I would say. If Odell Beckham Jr. is back to being like a number one, with this offensive line, the guys they have on defense, it's a really good team and might be better than Buffalo. Obviously, we can't put them out of the Chiefs, but might have a better chance than Buffalo of knocking them off. Yeah, I, the, the AFC, especially now that Pittsburgh just beat Buffalo, it is crowded. It is crowded and to me is the far superior conference, but I'm just happy football's back. I am so happy. Speaking of superiority, Bobby, Novak Djokovic has proven time and again to be the most superior male tennis player in the world, but not yesterday, Bobby foiled in his bid to win the calendar grand slam in the finals of the U S open losing to Daniil Medvedev, the number two seed. We're not huge tennis people. We can't get into like the details, the minutia of the match. I just want to know, Bobby, were you rooting for the underdog story or did you want to see Djokovic complete the grand slam? I, I, I think, you know, it is innate in sports fans to want to root for the underdog. So sure, I was rooting for Medvedev. But I'll say a couple things. One, you want to see history happen, right? Yep. You, you always you always want to watch that happen. And to see a calendar Grand Slam would have been unbelievable. Number two, Djokovic lost in straight sets. The match wasn't close. He lost in straight sets. like And lost his mind as well. Yeah, you know, there was a there was a picture that somebody posted on Twitter of him on the bench and he had a towel over his head and was just bawling because I have to believe that's just like the, the the realization that this probably isn't ever going to happen for you again. And that is just absolutely brutal. So, you know, I I was rooting for Djokovic. I, I got to say, I was rooting to see the calendar, the calendar Grand Slam, something we haven't seen. And just how, how can you not, right? Yeah. And the other part of it is you can obviously make a very clear, a very good argument that he's the best of all time already. But this would have been another notch on his belt that is just so high up there, so hard to detract from had he actually completed this. And it gives you, I think, an appreciation of how hard it is to actually do this because we taught, we've talked previously in, in the context of tennis how it's just basically for our entire lives, not even just our adult lives, like pretty much our entire lives altogether. It's been Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. And yet, I don't believe any of them has in our lifetime done this, the, the, career, the calendar year Grand Slam. So the fact that none of them, no, none of the three who – could honestly be the three best of all time have ever been able to do it. Even in this area where they seemingly win every single major that they compete in one of those three guys gives you an appreciation of how difficult this is to do and how cool it would have been for it to, for it to have been done. It kind of sucks too, because he lost in the Olympics. So 
He lost yeah. the Olympics, though, yeah. which was like, oh, wow, he might win the calendar Grand Slam and the Olympic gold medal. That's insanity. Then he loses in the Olympics. And we're like, well, who cares really about the Olympics? If he wins the calendar year Grand Slam, that's still like incredible, whatever. Who cares about the Olympics? Now he loses this. And it's just like, it's a really, really good year, obviously, to win three of the four calendar majors. But it kind of leaves you with a sour taste in your mouth. Yeah, imagine being him, but I mean, God, just just wild. But Jared, let's talk about sour tastes in mouths. Jared, I declare right now that I give up forever making predictions about baseball that have any no. kind of any kind of like legitimacy. It is, I don't know, man. Maybe maybe this is a recency bias thing, but I don't remember a year that felt as confusing as this year. Just all over the board confusing i don't understand let's start with new york and we we got if you want to start in both with the mets and the yankees we can do that but i was going to go for the yankees yankees are out of the playoffs they're not going to do it then they win 13 14 in a row they look amazing then they lose eight in a row toronto goes streaking now right now as we record they're out of the playoffs what do we have in the yankees because i don't know I just have such a hard time seeing them actually miss the playoffs. I know Tor- and I, I don't know which one of those teams is going to fall out, whether it's Toronto or Boston. I lean towards Boston because to- Toronto is just like they're streaking right now, as you mentioned, and their lineup is just incredible. They're probably, honestly, the scariest team. I think if you are the White Sox, right, or the Astros, one of these teams who at the top of the American League, I think you – really prefer and this is going to come back to bite me i'm sure but i feel like you'd prefer to see the yankees and the red sox as the wild card teams one of them ultimately moving on to the division series because i get it toronto there are holes in the pitching but it just feels like they could win every game 15 to 12 and it wouldn't matter it's it's lethal and you're talking about vlad guerrero who i mean has a legitimate shot at the triple crown which i understand is not as as valued as it used to be but like it's crazy the kind of season he's putting up. It's it's really something. Okay, so let's 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 move to the other side of this quickly. What do we have with the Mets? Because I, I you know they were in first place for a while, then they dropped. It's over. Jared, they're they're competing. They're three games out of the wild card. They're five games out of the division. It's not over. It's over, Bobby. Oh, I regret come to on. you. It's over. I mean. I think the wild card, yes, it's a, it's a smaller number. It's only three games at the time of recording, but they'd have to jump four teams, San Diego, Cincinnati, the Phillies, and the Cardinals, who they play now. So if there was 40 games to go in the season, I'd say, like, yeah, it's possible. It's not that they can't make up three games in the span of 18 games, which is what they have left. It's that I don't think they can do it and beat out all these other teams. So if they are going to do it, I think it has to be the division, even though it's five games as opposed to three, but they play Atlanta the last three games. So in theory, if they can jump Philly and they're only, I think a half game behind Philly right now and get it to within three for that last series, they have a chance. I just, I've seen 144 games of this team or whatever it is now. They're just not that good. They just have too many flaws. They are what they are at this point, which is a a 500 team. Is it possible that they can run off like a 14 and four stretch? I'd say it's extremely unlikely and I just don't think they're good enough to sustain a winning clip to get them the division. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm just like too overly pessimistic, but I think at this point I know what they are. I hope you're wrong. 
I hope they come back. I hope they make the plays and the Yankees don't. Man, that would be amazing. But, Jared, all right, let's finish it here, man. There are five teams in each league, American and National, that are within three games of the wild card. We've already mentioned a couple of them, especially you mentioned them all in the National League. But on the American League side of things, we also have Seattle, who is still sticking around. And we have Oakland, who is, I, I guess, still sticking around. So here's what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to change up the question a bit. Out of Oakland, Seattle, the Mets, and the Phillies, which of those four teams is most likely to make the playoffs? Because those are all the bottom teams of those five in the wild card standings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I would knock out the National League teams. I, I don't think either the Mets or the Phillies are making it. I think Atlanta is just going to win that division, and somebody else is going to win the wild card. San Diego's, I don't know. I don't know which one of San Diego, Cincinnati, or St. Louis is going to do it, but I think one of them will win it. So that takes you to the American League. I mean, I just keep dumping on Seattle every week, being like, they're not going to do it. And they're still around. They're the hottest team of those teams, other than Toronto. They're the best. The last 10, Boston's five and five. The Yankees are two and eight. Oakland's four and six. Seattle's six and four, although they've lost their last two. It's hard because I really don't believe in any of those. Te- Oakland like always lets me down. When they let everyone down since 2001. Yeah. I think I'll stick with Oakland. It's like, I'm so not confident in it. It's more just like a lack of confidence in any of the other three and any other four. Do you think one of the other four has got a better chance? Jump on the Seattle train. Now the AL East teams are going to beat up on each other. And the Seattle Mariners are going to sneak in for that second wild card. I'm, I'm calling it now. All right, Bobby, we finished What Did I Miss Talking Baseball. We're going to continue doing that in this week's edition of Tell Me I'm Wrong, but we're going to go not talking current baseball necessarily. Let's go back to the historical context, Bobby. I want to know who you think is the face, kind of like the the greatest pitcher of our generation of guys. So I'm talking Mm -hmm. pretty much active pitchers now. So let's take like the Randy Johnson, Pedro's Greg Maddox. Those guys are, 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 you know, I mean, not before our time, we saw them pitch, but they've been gone for a while. So of the active guys, I think there's four guys that are in the conversation. You have Clayton Kershaw who debuted in 2008, pretty much almost right off the bat was one of the best pitchers in baseball. And we're now in 2021. And, you know, he's not one of the top five best pitchers in baseball, but he's still probably like top 15 guys. Still, still someone who, when you see his name, when your team's facing him, you're like, eh, I don't feel great about my chances. You've got Max Scherzer, who debuted also in 2008 and is, unlike Kershaw, is maybe the best pitcher in baseball right now. He's certainly in the top five. He's got a chance to win his fourth Cy Young Award this year. You've got Justin Verlander, who debuted in 2005, but his first full season was 2006. He's actually been around longer than Verlander and Kershaw. He's hurt this year, last year. We kind of forget about him. Last year, his year was 258. He was one of the best pitchers in baseball. The year before that, 222, uh, 252. So certainly not too shabby. And the last guy, the wild card here, a guy that I don't, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think of right off the bat, but he's having a renaissance career year is Adam Wainwright, who debuted also 
in 2005, but 2006 was his first full season in the bullpen, then became a starter the next year. His ERA is 298 this year, Bobby. He's got, I mean, he's not going to win the Cy Young, but he's going to get votes. He's going to finish top five in all likelihood, which is, it's kind of crazy at this point. He's 40 years old. So of those four guys, Bobby, who, when you think of the best pitcher of this generation, the guy that you will one day tell your kids, like the first guy that you're going to be like, yeah, I saw that guy pitch. Who is it? I don't know, man. Like, I, I want to start with the one that I think is definitely not, but say mm-hmm. something about him. The pitcher of our generation is not Adam Wainwright, but he does not get the credit he deserves. Just like it would have been so easy because in 2017, 18, and 19, his ERA in those years was 5'11, 446, and 449. His peripherals were fair at best. His yeah. ERA plus. You know, in, in, in those years, it's just, you know, if low average yeah. for, those, for those that don't know, 100 is average. And he had 83, 88, 100, like just not great. You could have easily hung it up and then comes back in 2020, granted a 60 game season, 3.15, then 2.98 this year. It feels like he's been around longer than literally everyone else. That's what it feels like. <laughs> he's 40 years old. It's unbelievable how good he is, but like ultimately, statistically, he's just not on the same level of dominance as the other three guys. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put Wayne right away. In terms of saying who did I see pitch, I don't know, man. I I think I think the answer is Kershaw, but it's. By the narrowest of margins, I, you know, I, I, okay. So, so take Kershaw to the side for a second. Who's the who's the challenger? Who's the number one challenger? Would you go Scherzer or Verlander? I think it's Scherzer, but maybe that's recency bias. I mean, right now, like what Scherzer's doing for the Dodgers is mm-hmm. unbelievable. I mean, it, it's it's only an eight game sample, and I know we're talking about career, but I just want to read you some of these numbers. In eight starts for the Dodgers, he's six and zero. Oh, with a 0.88 ERA, his ERA plus, remember, 100 is average, which means if you're 200, you're twice as good as the league average. His ERA plus is 457. I like, I can't even wrap my mind around that. But like, in terms of sheer domination, and maybe this is just a gut feeling, but like, it just feels like Scherzer has dominated people in a way slightly above Verlander do you feel differently on that because it's weird because they played for the same team they both played for the Tigers yeah that's true it's funny Scherzer overlapped Verlander on the Tigers and now overlapping with Kershaw with the Dodgers I think you're right I mean I'm looking at the stats now I I think maybe the best argument for Scherzer is that he he started in his career he started 395 games and Verlander started 454 games so that's you know essentially 60 more starts. So that's pretty much two full seasons. And Verlander has for his career, and we're talking about dominance. Verlander has for his career 3,013 strikeouts, and Scherzer, we know, just went over 3,000. He's got 3,003. So Scherzer has 10 fewer strikeouts in 60 fewer innings, which is certainly a check in his box. The career ERA, so Scherzer's at 3.14. Verlander's at 3.33. I, yeah, I mean, Verlander's got two Cy Young, Scherzer's got three. 
Verlander doesn't have a world. Verlander has the MVP, though. Scherzer's never won the MVP. Verlander, like, pro- wow. Remember that year that Verlander won the – I, like, forgot about that year that he won the MVP. Yeah. This was, so it's 2011. It was, like, we were already in the era of, like, wins – you know, wins don't matter. But I think, like, we still thought more of wins then than we do now. He went 24-5, and five, <laughs> 240 ERA, 251 innings pitch. Like, you never see that. How many did he strike out that year? His ERA plus was 172. He struck out. 250 strikeouts and 251 innings. So nine per nine, which is like uh, good. Not like, inc- I mean, yeah, I guess it's pretty damn good, but not his best. I, I, I think wild. the nerd goes, I think the nod goes to Scherzer by the slightest of margins. So make the case for Scherzer against Clayton Kershaw. I mean, right. So like the obvious. Or can it not be made? I don't know. So let's talk about it. I mean, the obvious stat that like anybody will look at is war, which you can devalue or value however much you want. But if we're just looking at war, you know, Scherzer's got him by what, like four, right? It's 71 to 67. Kershaw's got him by four. Sorry, Kershaw, excuse me. Yes, Kershaw's got him by four. You know, I I look at strikeouts uh, in about the same amount of starts. Scherzer has 400 more strikeouts. So you're talking like, upwards of two full seasons more in a very similar amount of time. Yep. You're looking at a guy who there were never any questions about Scherzer going on the mound in high stakes games. There was never a question only last year. Did anyone say, okay, Kershaw did it. And then, by the way, there are still some people that will, I mean, he'll never be able to totally wipe that reputation. Absolutely. And like you think of other guys that have not come through in big moments in other sports. And we say like, they're great, but Charles Barkley, Dan Marino, guys who are like, obviously all time greats, but like never got it done. Take out last year. Kershaw goes down as the greatest unclutch pitcher of all time. Like just, and, and, and there has to be something said about that when you're talking about the face of a generation of pitchers, because if you're not a winner, it's hard to be the face, right? Yeah. And, and, and so I, he did it last year. So chalk it up as, and, and, I don't know, chalk it up as maybe, maybe an asterisk, right? 60 games. Like if that goes the full time, like, I, I don't know. Yeah. Scherzer pulled it out with the nationals. He's always been good in really good games. And the, and the, and the other thing I'll say about Scherzer quickly, when Kershaw came into the league, Kershaw was okay in year one when he came in and then he was great from that point on. Right. So from 2009 to now he's been great. Scherzer wasn't good in the first couple of years he came in. And the fact that he's not only in this conversation, but there's an argument to be made that he's the face of pitching of our generation of this, like of, of these current pitchers, like, I mean, how good do you have to be? How dominant do you have to be after having three or four, not bad years, you know, in his, in his fifth year, his ERA was four forty three. sorry, in his fourth year. It's, it's crazy. So I think it's way closer than maybe others would give it credit for. Yeah. When you think of, I mean, it, it's tough because Kershaw has, I'm not going to say reinvented himself, but he's still really good. Like you said, last year, it was only 10 games because it was a short season. 
and his era was 2.16 this year in 18 games started it's 339 which is good obviously not great and certainly not near the where the levels that he's gotten to in his career but you don't think of him now as like dominant you think of him as like good to very good pitcher but he's not dominating you in the way that scherzer is still dominating even at age 37 it's not just that he beats you he is destroying you and a psychopath and a psychopath yeah i mean yeah but his career numbers are just insane there's yeah like there's honestly you could really make the argument now i think baseball is too different now so like people wouldn't give him this credit but i mean there's a legit case to be made he's the best pitcher of all time really like he's he's pitched so you can't like we said he came up in 2008 not including this season because he's at 18 he has 12 seasons where he's made 20 starts <laughs> and 10 of and in 10 of those 12 his era has been under three and one of those is his rookie year when he's 426 whatever and the other year is 2019 when his era was 3.03 so from 2009 to 2018 he never had an ERA above three. That's unbelievable. It's crazy. <laughs> and within that time frame, he had three years where his ERA was below two. I mean, it, these numbers are ridiculous. Is there is it, is it is it worth putting a caveat in there saying like he's the best regular season pitcher, or just like you know you know what I mean? Like how 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 much? Well, is, you know what? Let's let's dig into this a little bit because how much does he that takes go? a lot of crap for it. So for the playoffs for their careers. Kershaw, wow. Yeah, he's 13 and 12, which, okay, it doesn't really matter. 4.19 ERA in the playoffs. That's not good. And Scherzer in the playoffs, 7 and 5, 338 ERA. So, like, again, these guys, they're not near their levels of dominance in the playoffs, which is to be expected because they're facing much better competition. 338 ERA for Scherzer, 419 for Kershaw. Scherzer's got 112 playoff innings pitch. Kershaw's 189. So he's pitched a lot more in the postseason, obviously, but that's just a function of the teams you play on. Yeah, it's such a knock against Kershaw that his playoff year is over four. Like his, his like we said, his, his career is 248. His playoff year is 419. It's nearly two runs higher. So, so how it's just, it's how much does that factor in? Like to me, yeah. given that, given, given everything I know about their abilities and how dominant and like, in their primes, who would I want in a regular season game? Clayton Kershaw. But in their primes, who do I want in the postseason? I want Max Scherzer. And for that reason, because I think it's really close, I think the pitcher of our generation is Max Scherzer. I, I still think you're wrong. I, I So here's the thing. If Max Scherzer had Madison Bumgarner's playoff resume, and so it was like, yeah, Kershaw is, you know, a better regular season pitcher, but but Scherzer has this ridiculous playoff resume that you know, you, ha- you can't, you can't like turn away from. I would agree with you. It's not that different in the play. Like, yes, 338 is better than 419 for sure. It's almost but, a full run. Yeah, but it's not like dominant. It's not like, like, Brum- like you know, let me pull up Bumgarner's like postseason numbers. They're going to blow your mind. Like Bumgarner, it's too bad because we, you know, he doesn't have the obviously the regular season success to do this. His career is 330, but his war is only 37.7. His playoff numbers, though, he's eight and three with a 211 ERA. If that's Scherzer, <laughs> then it's like, yeah, this guy, and he's probably the best big game pitcher we've had, like of our generation. If that's Scherzer's playoff numbers, I'm like, yeah, this is definitely Scherzer. I just think 
to have three years of an ERA under two, Scherzer's never done it once. It's not a knock against him. He's one of the best ever. But like I said, I think it's just recent. It's a little bit of recency bias. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. He's just not as good as he used to be, which is arguably the, I mean, probably not the best pitcher ever. Top five, certainly top 10. Yeah. You just, you look at some of Kershaw's ears. <laughs> just look at his ERAs. They're just, un, they're unbelievable, dude. 183, 177, 169. Yeah. For a season. For a season. Like, I can't. We, we talked about backyard baseball last week. If that was your ERA in backyard baseball, you'd be like, this is dumb. Like, this is too easy. <laughs> he's doing that in Major League Baseball. Yeah, and he's doing it against the I... – So what, you're, you're saying it's Kershaw? I am Team Kershaw. I know I'm going to get heat for it because of the playoff numbers. I get it. I totally understand that. And if you say it's Max Scherzer, I think you're wrong, but I don't think you're crazy. And honestly, like, we, we threw Verlander out here pretty quickly i think you can make a pretty good case for him too but i just don't see how you can look at clayton kershaw's regular season numbers between 2009 and like 2018 and i know he's still good but that like 10 year stretch is just not fair it's just insanity it's video game numbers kershaw scherzer verlander dude we were treated to some real pitching over our years which is crazy but i hear you of course none for our teams well, that's, I mean, look, you had to grab. I have to grab. I have to grab. Yeah, yeah. He can't be in this conversation because the, he just hasn't done it for long enough. But yeah, and it's, I don't know if, if he will because he looks like he's breaking down. But if you're talking about just peak, peak performance, yes, DeGrom is absolutely in the conversation. Yeah, the Orioles, it has to be Ubaldo Jimenez. Don't be so quick to look past Sidney Ponson, Rodrigo Lopez, Jose Mercedes. And listen, Chris Tillman was good. Chris Tillman. Absolute greats. Yeah. Joe Saunders. <laughs> Some absolute legends there. Jared, usually I feel pretty pretty exhausted at the end of these, but I just feel so amped with football back. MLB postseason is around the corner. I mean, this is this is my favorite time of year for the sports. Is is that do, do you feel the same? Yeah, I think you're probably right about that because, like, you got the baseball playoffs coming up. Our teams, I guess, in theory, are still in it in football. I mean, my team's probably out already. Your team's probably in it. A hundred percent. Next week, it's going to be even better. We'll get into week two. We'll get I, again. We will have no idea what's going on in the baseball playoffs. Not the slightest idea. Maybe Conor McGregor will take another swing at somebody. <laughs> he took a swing at MGK. It was super weird. But anyway. You're not going to want to miss it. Come back next week when we'll see you next week on the next Chatter Up.